This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. This morning, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, we're looking this morning at verses 22 through 27. Israel is on the banks of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, as it is in Hebrew, Yam Suf. Uh, they, are, they have just seen the destruction of the Egyptian army. Uh, As the army pursued Israel through the Red Sea, the Lord brought the water back down on the Egyptian army. And then the first part of this chapter actually uh, records their song of celebration to the Lord as they uh, celebrate that great victory. And then we pick up in uh, chapter 15, verse 22. Hear the word of God. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, The waters became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is your word. It is truth itself. And Lord, as we come to your your word, we pray that as we study this history of Israel, of our people, our ancestors in the faith, uh, that you would guide us, Lord. Give us insight into the word. Lord, fix our minds on the scriptures. Help us to be attentive and help us, Father, to learn those things that you would have us to learn. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. The verb made, as the English Standard Version has it there, is quite accurate. The sense of it is that Moses caused them to set out. He made them set out from the Red Sea. Now, that's a little bit of a peculiar way to put it. Why is it that way? Why does it say that? I suspect because in many ways Israel didn't want to leave the side of the Red Sea there. Uh, they were, after all, celebrating a magnificent victory, most unlikely, a very surprising victory, going from return to slavery and perhaps even death uh, to victory 
toward to, to life in a most astounding way. Uh, kind of like a quarterback who wants to linger on the field after a, after a fourth quarter come from behind victory, who just wants to stay and savor the moment. Israel wanted to stay there by the banks of the Red Sea just to continue to enjoy the moment, reluctant to move on. But Moses knew that they could not stay on the top of that metaphorical mountain anymore, enjoying that mountaintop experience because life moves on, and so must they. And so he made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Well, they did. They left the seashore for a much less desirable location, the wilderness, a dry place, desolate place, uh, not a desert exactly the way that we would think of it as just rolling dunes of sand. Uh, there was vegetation there. Things grew there, perhaps more then than now. Uh, but nevertheless, a, a fairly bleak place, not the place one would choose to go except to pass through it maybe out of necessity. Well, maybe that quarterback lingering on the field of victory wanted to linger to savor, to savor the, uh, the moment, but maybe he also didn't want to leave because he knew that uh, that evening he had to go and study for a difficult test, and so he wanted to stay put, not only because it was a great place to be, but because he didn't want to face what had to come. Well, Israel didn't know it, but the Lord was leading them off that field of victory to uh, a test, something that would be... Uh, difficult for them. And actually not just in this passage, but in the next several uh, in Exodus. They are entering into a time of testing as the Lord leads his newly redeemed people into some situations to test them and to help them learn some lessons that he could teach them in no other way. To, to teach them about themselves, to teach them about this glorious God who has uh, brought them out of bondage. The Lord wants them to learn some things. Uh, John McKay, who has a great commentary on Exodus, published by Christian Focus Publications, is a Scottish uh, Free Church of Scotland uh, scholar. He puts it this way, puts it well. He says, it's God's normal way of working that entering into glory does not immediately follow salvation. Rather, there is a time of preparation to make his people ready for the inheritance he will bestow on them. That was the method he followed in the case of the Israelites. Free they indeed were from the hand of Egyptian control, but they still had much to learn. For one thing, their faith was still very weak. And it would take time for their trust in the Lord to develop so that they would be able to face every set of circumstances without hesitation. They were, therefore, led into times of difficulty and testing so that their spiritual faculties might be developed through use. Get this. It's one thing to sing the praises of their deliverer. So we're doing, and and rightly so, in, in Exodus 15. It's one thing to sing the praises of their deliverer. Quite another to live out that faith when confronted with the problems of ordinary living. Overcoming the latter challenge would bring them to a clearer understanding of themselves and of what it meant to have faith in the Lord. Now, that was true for them, but that is also true for us as well. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, writing of Israel's time in the wilderness, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
And so Israel is in that in-between time, in that time between having come out of Egypt and yet that time uh, before which they entered into their inheritance. They entered into the promised land. Uh, they were in the wilderness. And like Israel in the wilderness, we, the church, the, the new Israel of God, now in Christ and the new covenant, are in that in-between time, that in-between time of having been redeemed by Christ, of course, when he died on the cross a couple millennia ago, uh, but more specifically that time when you and I came to faith in him, when we entered into that redemption, that salvation, our exodus from death to life, in between that time and the time when we will enter into our Canaan, into the new heavens and new earth, into glory, we live in between, just as Israel was in this time in the wilderness. Uh, like them, we too are on a pilgrimage to that place that the Lord has for us, and it's often difficult. But it's there that God teaches us lessons that we could learn in no other way. It's there he strengthens our faith as in no other way. And it's there that he causes us to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ, uh, as he could through no other way. Now, what happened to Israel was real. Those were historical events. But at the same time, there is very much an analogy from their situation to ours. And we need to, to understand that and learn from that so that what they experience is in many ways uh, the same things that we experience now living in this fallen world. Well, two lessons in particular that the Lord has for us to learn here. Now, he teaches these, all, uh, these to us all the time, and he can teach them to us at any time. But it seems like particularly when we most acutely feel the wilderness experience, uh, is when we learn these lessons the, the best, uh, when, we, when we recognize the bleakness of the wilderness. It's not always bleak, uh, but there are times, as Israel does here, where you realize uh, the difficulties the wilderness can bring. And in that time between our coming to faith in Christ and entering to glory, we're in that wilderness. Sometimes it's pleasant. Oftentimes it can be annoying, and sometimes it can be almost devastating. So what are those lessons? Well, a couple that we see here in this passage. First, we must learn to trust in the Lord. Faith, trust, that's a lesson that Israel needed to learn, and it's one that we need to learn as well. Particularly a couple things about trusting him. We need to trust his providence. Providence is that doctrine of God's ruling over whatsoever comes to pass. That God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over what we would consider the big things, big world-changing events. But he is also sovereign. His providence includes even the small things, even down to the tiniest details of life, uh, even down to the tiniest uh, Actions and occurrences in our universe, things even too tiny to see down on the molecular level, even down on the atomic level, up to the movement of galaxies. That the scriptures teach that it's the Lord who rules over all things. You say, well, couldn't he just be in charge of the big things and the other things just fit into place? Well, no, because who knows when one of those little things isn't going to derail one of the big things. They're just out there on their own. That's why R.C. Sproul says there's no maverick molecule in the universe. Because who knows what that maverick molecule could do uh, as it 
affects the big things. God is sovereign over it all. His providence includes everything. It's called letting God be God. It's called recognizing that God is God. God is not just me, only a little bigger. God is the Alpha, the Omega. That's why he can grasp everything. He can encompass everything. He's not just me magnified. I can't comprehend that. I don't see how God's intellect, how his, his mentality, if we want to put it that way, can comprehend everything all at the same time, and yet it does. Because he's God. He's not me made big. He's not you a little larger. He is God. So we recognize that the doctrine and scripture of God's providence, that God uh, is ruling and overruling everything in our lives. And you see that in the scriptures, and we see that in our own lives. But do we trust that providence? That's one thing Israel needed to learn. Notice that Moses leads them away from the Red Sea, away from that place of victory and triumph and delight, uh, away from the seashore into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days, and while they're traveling, they find no water. Now, a couple of things that tells us. Uh, one, they probably had some water with them. I don't know if they had water bottles, bottled water, but they carried water with them somehow to be able to sustain them, to be able to have some with them uh, in skins or whatever it might be, uh, just like we might carry water with us today. But it also tells us their route was irregular, because typically for travelers traveling through, there were places they could stop daily to be able, at an oasis, wherever, to be able to find water. Well, we read they had traveled for three days, following Moses, following the Lord, and they could find no water. Now, that has to be discouraging. You know, it's kind of like you see your gas tank running empty, and suddenly there's no gas station in sight, uh, whereas you've passed all kinds of them when, you know, you need one, you can't find it. Well, same with them. They recognized this was starting to get a little bit desperate, and there's no doubt the temptation to think, what, what's going on? What's gone wrong here? Well, notice, then they get their hopes up. They find water. Verse 23, when it came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Uh, it could be, given the location, that it may have been brackish water, salty or, or, or semi-salty water, uh, kind of brackish water. Uh, maybe there was just something very strong about the taste of it, that it was unpalatable. Whatever it was, they finally find water. They think, okay, great, problem solved, here's water, and they start to drink it and spit it out. They go, we can't drink this stuff. And they call it Mara uh, because it's bitter. The word means bitter. Now, we encounter that connection somewhere else. Does anybody, anybody think in the scriptures? Okay, Old Testament trivia here. Jessica, what was it? Naomi. Yeah, exactly. Remember Naomi, uh, her, her sons die. She has her two daughters-in-law. She heads back to Bethlehem, and she comes back to Bethlehem, and they say, oh, it's Naomi. And what does she say? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. And so that same name occurs there in the book of Ruth. Well, that's exactly what it means. The water was bitter. It's undrinkable. So they named this place Mara, bitter, yuck. And not only uh, are they not only do they not find water, and when they finally find water, their hopes are dashed because it proves undrinkable. But they begin to grumble. Now that word occurs here; it occurs in Numbers, 
uh, and it's usually aimed at Moses, poor guy. Uh, they, they grumble. They complain against Moses, verse 24, saying, okay, Moses, what are we going to drink? No water. Uh, well, there they are. They begin to grumble. They begin to complain. Why? Because they doubt God's providence. Now, remember, they're, they're very immature. They're still babes in the faith, so to speak. They've just come out of Egypt. Uh, they haven't even met with the Lord at Sinai. So they're still very much in an infancy, spiritually speaking, which is precisely what God is doing here. He's beginning to teach them, beginning to help them grow. They complain against Moses because of a lack of trust in God's providence. Now, you and I would never do that, right? We, we, we don't know what it means to, to grumble against Moses or anybody else when things don't go the way we think they should. And especially when things are going badly, we suddenly get our hopes raised and it falls through. You know, that's hard. That almost seems like a cruel joke. Thanks, God, you, you just raised my hope. And yet it just fell through. Maybe it's the job offer that looked like it was going to happen, but the last minute gets canceled. You know, maybe it's uh, going to the doctor and, and things are looking better. But then actually, no, on, uh, but, but with a second test, it appears that they're actually worse than they were, not better. Um, is there not that tendency to say, well, why did you even raise my hopes? Well, God isn't cruel. He's not playing tricks on us. He wasn't playing tricks with Israel here. His purpose was to teach them to trust. So we have to trust in God's providence that even when circumstances look like they're going wrong, to our eyes, we have to say, Lord, I can't figure this out, but I trust that you can. I trust that you know what you're doing here, and I put my faith in you. I count on you to make all of this right. Not only trusting in his providence, but also trusting in the power of God. God's power isn't something that's reserved just for the Old and New Testaments. God is still at work today. His power still is brought to bear on behalf of his people and for his glory. Notice verse 25. What does Moses do? Well, Moses has been walking with the Lord a lot longer than Israel. Remember, the Lord sent him out of Egypt when he was found to have killed the Egyptian. Spent 40 years in the wilderness. A lot of time to think, a lot of time to learn. And Moses cries to the Lord, which is what Israel should have done. Instead, they complain against Moses, their leader. But Moses cries to the Lord. The Lord says, Moses, here's a log. The idea is he teaches him something about this log, this tree that's there. Uh, the word is that the idea is that this is, he's teaching him. This is a teachable moment. And he takes that tree or that log, throws it into the water, and the water became sweet, became drinkable, became potable. Now, some have posited that there was something about that tree that was able to, to purify the water. And there are some things in nature you can put in water that will help purify a small amount of water. But we're not talking about a small amount of water. We're talking about one log and water for a whole lot of people. The point is not that the log itself had curative properties. In fact, I would suggest to you precisely the opposite. Once again, God tells his people to do something, or here, Moses, that makes no sense. Moses tossed, the, tossed that log on the, on the side there into the water. Good plan. 
It makes a lot of sense. But Moses doesn't say that. He just does it, and God made the water pure. Now, a couple of things. One, that shows that it's God who's able to do it. It's also showing that God is often pleased to work through people. Today, we might call that preaching the gospel. Stumbling block to Jews. Foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called the power and the wisdom of God. You see, God delights to confound human ability, human wisdom, by, we see this many times in the scriptures, calling them to do something that seems to have nothing to do with the situation. It seems utterly hopeless, and yet God works through it to show that the power is his, but also to show that he will work through the one who trusts in him. Everything from Naaman, who goes and and washes in in the Jordan River and is cleansed of his leprosy, to uh, here Israel later going and marching around Jericho, um, God delights to confound human wisdom to glorify his power and his might, but allowing people to participate in what he does. And that's exactly what happens here. So trust in the power of the Lord, and the Lord does provide for them this, this water that he knows that they need. He provides this, this water so that they might live. The water became sweet, not just drinkable, but good. We think, you could trace the, the theme of water through the scriptures. The New Testament reading that we read earlier, of course, uh, points to the real water that gives life, that of Jesus himself, where Jesus says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Israel would be thirsty again very soon. But Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That Jesus satisfies forever in a way that physical water satisfies only for a time. So we have to learn to trust the Lord, to trust his providence, to trust that even when it may seem like he's leading us nowhere, that he knows what he's doing. We rest in that, but also to trust his power that God can act at any time to accomplish anything he wants to do. He may not do it the way we think that he should. We might sometimes wish he would use his power to do certain things. But again, go back to God's providence. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one in charge. He's the one who has Israel exactly where he wants them. He's the one who has you exactly where he wants you. So trusting him. The second lesson he wants them to learn is that we, and us too, is that we must learn to obey him. Now, this follows from the first. If we trust him, then we will obey him. Now, see verse 25, second part of the verse, new paragraph in the ESV. The Lord there there made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Right in the middle of the passage is that word tested. This is a test. Right? It is. The Lord deliberately put them in this situation to not just to test them to find out what they're made of, but to prove them, to strengthen them, to try them. He put some stress into their lives on purpose. And notice what he comes out of it with. There he tested them saying, if you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes. Notice it calls for a couple of things. One, we need to know his will. Two of these verbs, one and three, have to do with knowing. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, and later if you will give ear to his commandments. That's a Hebrew idiom that basically means to listen. Kind of like we would say, lend me your ears. Give ear. Listen. We need to know what God is saying. There are a lot of people out there who think they know what the Bible says, 
and the wrong. We need to hear, we need to give ear, we need to listen diligently to the voice of the Lord now for us in Scripture. We can't obey what we don't know. And then verbs 2 and 4 have to do with doing. Now, the Hebrew idea of listening implies that you do it. That's there too. But we do have to take it in. Verse 26, he says, Do that which is right in his eyes. Keep all his statutes. See, we don't want to fall guilty of James' admonition not to be uh, mere hearers of the word. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers only. So we listen. We do want to listen. We do want to understand what God is saying, but then we also want to do, to keep, to obey what God is saying. And as a result of that, notice what he says. And this may seem rather strong, a little strange. He says, if you do that, I will put none of the diseases on you I put on the Egyptians. Which reminds Israel, they're not exempt from the displeasure of the Lord. They can rebel. They can worship idols. And in fact, as you know, they did. They later experienced very much the kinds of things that fell on the Egyptians. Sometimes exactly, sometimes not so. But the point is God's chastening, God's uh, judgment, God's discipline uh, on those who were Israelites in name only. Uh, Certainly his discipline of those who were part of his people who knew him, but nevertheless were part of that whole system of rebellion they fell into. Notice what he says, For I am the Lord, your healer. Jehovah Rophe, sometimes the name is known uh, and used. The, the Lord who heals. Um, God is the one who brings health. He's the one who brings living water. He's the one who brings physical water, physical and spiritual Needs. Now, notice this chastening particularly is not a matter of salvation. He's already brought them out. They've already experienced the salvation. But he says, you need to listen to my word. You need to obey my voice. If you do that, then you won't experience discipline or chastening. Now, those who are his, he will discipline if they need it and does today. But he see, reminds them, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who heals you. I'm the one who makes you whole. And then notice, verse 27, they came to Elim, 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, this beautiful oasis, plenty of water, and they camp there by the water. Test is over. Stress test has completed. Then the Lord brings them to a place where there's plenty of water. See, this was very intentional. Who knows, but the experiences the Lord brings into our life uh, are but his way of testing us, of growing us, of preparing us. But what do we do so often? So often we grumble, we complain, I don't like this, what's God doing? If he's really in control, why does he do this to me? Well, remember, when we read about the Israelites grumbling, that all too often uh, we're very much like they are. Well, it's a pretty straight shot, right? You believe in Jesus, he's won the victory, smooth sailing for the believer right on into the promised land, right? Wrong. Of course not. Uh, In the book of Acts, Paul warns us what the Hebrews learned here. Acts 14.22, he says, Through many tribulations, many afflictions, many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul knew what he was talking about just uh, days before he he said that, wrote that, Luke wrote that. uh, Enemies of the gospel had stoned him and dragged him outside the city and left him for dead. Paul said it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Every bone in his body, every aching bone in his body told him that. He knew that. 
And Israel was learning that, and we learned that as well. Yes, Christ has won a tremendous victory. Yes, we celebrate all that he has done for us. But the world is still a fallen place. God's curse on this fallen, rebellious world is still in place. The day is coming when everything will be made new, but it has not come yet. And so we live in that in-between time when we already enjoy so much in Christ, but there is not yet the fullness of all that we will one day experience that God has for us in Christ, so much that we don't yet enjoy. That's where Israel was. That's where we are. The Hebrews may have come out of Egypt, but they're not yet home free. Neither are we. Until we are, the Lord calls us to trust his rule, trust his providence, trust his power, and to obey his word. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that uh, many of us have already experienced some pretty severe wilderness testing. Others may be right now, and others of us, Father, will in the future. Father, increase our faith. Help us to willingly submit to whatever testing, whatever lessons you see fit to teach us. Help us to humble ourselves, Father, while we trust in you, while we continue to obey your word, and all to the glory of Christ and to the strengthening of our souls, strengthening of the church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.